This morning we continue our summer in the Psalms, and our text for this morning is Psalm chapter 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I called out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be upon your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. As we explore this psalm this morning, I want to just remind everybody that the psalms are deeply emotional prayers. The genre of this writing is not instruction, primarily, though they're instructive. It's not instruction, it's meditation. It's inviting us to stop and think and marinate and ultimately have a recalibration of our mind, our heart, our soul. Deeply emotional prayers. So this morning as we unpack this, I'm going to just work through um, the flow of this poetry. We're going to explore three things. Firstly, uh, that we can be honest. Secondly, that we need to magnify And thirdly, that we're called to trust. Be honest, magnify, and trust. First, let's begin with being honest. This psalm, and many psalms, invite us to be honest about the fears we have of our problems and the contributions we've made to our problems. Sometimes our problems are things that have happened to us. And other times, our problems were actually set in motion by us. And the Psalms invite us to be pretty honest when we come to problems that are in our life as a result of our contribution. In other Psalms, David is very honest about his contribution. Psalm 51 is a famous Psalm of repentance that he prays after he commits atrocities. And many, many other Psalms are very... uh, honest and open about uh, his contribution and his sin. This psalm uh, doesn't get into the sort of depth that the other psalms get into it, but it is nevertheless honest. And so there's a lot of fear in this psalm. This psalm is about being honest about fears and problems, uh, but David does have a contribution. And uh, you're familiar with some of the most you know, nefarious sins that David did, namely that he abused his power when he was king. He was not uh, out in battle with his soldiers, but he was at the wrong place at the wrong time by being in his palace on the high ground while this woman, Bathsheba, is bathing on the roof. She's doing the right thing by bathing on the roof where no one can see you. He's doing the wrong thing by lusting after this woman. And then he sends for her. So when you grow up in church like I did and you hear David committed adultery and then you grow up and you hear about uh, 10,000 examples of adultery... You know, you can get the wrong idea. You can get the wrong idea. It's not like David was at a bar and he saw Bathsheba there and she was like, Hey, how you doing? And he was like, I'm kind of interested as well. I think we're kind of into each other. One thing led to another and like she would... No. 
He sent for her, and she had no choice in the matter. This is the ultimate of all power dynamics. You're the king, and she's a woman in the ancient world. Now, she's married to a soldier, so it gets worse, as you know, because he sends her husband out to make sure that he dies, and he takes this woman... And even though we don't have the details of whether in the moment it was consensual, but the point was nothing about the arrangement was was consensual. This is tragic, and it turns your stomach, and it's supposed to because it makes us beg for a greater king. There is a greater king. It's supposed to make us say, boy, we thought this guy was going to be the hero. Well, there is a hero, but it's not this guy. So as a result of that sin... The poor child dies, and not only that, because, but because he gets Bathsheba pregnant, and this is why he goes and commits a murder to kill her husband. And, but before he does that, he tries to get her husband to sleep with her, and okay, it's your kid. This is a Game of Thrones scenario. You know, it was your kid, not mine, and she's pregnant with your kid, and okay, that didn't work. And the guy's too loyal. He's like, no, we're supposed to be at battle. I can't sleep with my wife right now. I'm going to sleep at your door. You're my king. And he's like, oh, I've got to kill this guy. The whole thing is tragic. So that spiraled into, the, into essentially, uh, the kingdom of Israel being lost. Now, there, God made a covenant that someone from David's line would be on the throne forever, which, of course, is forecasting to Jesus Christ. But everything now is spiraling. But there's another problem, which leads to why Absalom is taking over the kingdom and kicking his dad off the throne and, and amassing an army and being, a re- and being a rebel and taking it over. And if you only look at that side of the story, it's just like, man, this is a rotten king. Uh, this is a rotten kid. You know, David's the good guy here. He's repented and he's torn his clothes and, his, and he's destroyed before God. Repentance isn't saying, I'm sorry. Repentance means you pick up your life and you go in the opposite direction. That's what David actually did. So his sins were abhorrent, but his repentance was real, which is good news for you and I, because if God could not forgive those who truly repent regards of our sin, then all of us, starting with this preacher, would be damned. But another thing happened, and it was that one of David's sons, Absalom, he had a half-brother, and uh, his half-brother rapes Absalom's sister. And it's horrific, and it's terrible, and it turns your stomach, and it's supposed to. Because we're supposed to look at this and go, man, there's got to be a better king. There's got to be a greater hero. And it's all pointing us to crave that Jesus Christ would come in his justice and his mercy and his grace. And what happens is the Bible says, if you go back through 2 Samuel to read all of this, that, that David is furious, but he doesn't do anything. So after a couple of years, Absalom kills the brother that raped his sister. This whole thing is going sideways, the family is spiraling, everything is spiraling, everything is coming unglued. And so you see David's inaction in that scenario, you know, nothing happens to the brother that commits this atrocity, and Absalom is outraged, and so now Absalom is going around saying, like, this guy's a lousy king, I should be king, and David's successors are like, yeah, we agree with you. And so all the people who were once loyal to David are now becoming loyal to Absalom. All of his closest you know, advisors and people in his life start to say, like, no, we actually think your son would be a better king than you are. So there's a lot of fear going on here. There's a physical threat. And the physical threat is that Absalom has arisen. But then there's sort of like a psychological sort of a threat, a fear, because David is saying, everybody's saying that God won't deliver the king. So 
They have a precedent for that because before David, there was another king that got it wrong. And God didn't deliver that king, King Saul. So now all of David's people are like, hey, we have a precedent actually for when, this, when the king abandons the ways of God, that God doesn't deliver that king. God didn't deliver Saul. He's probably not going to deliver you. So David is having not only a physical, real crisis of thousands of people after him wanting his life, but he is now having an existential and a, a psychological and a spiritual crisis because he's like, everybody's saying God won't deliver me. So there's a lot of honesty here. Charles Spurgeon said of this text, If all the trials which come from heaven and all the temptations which ascend from hell and all the crosses which arise from the earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. At first glance, we can't relate to any of this because none of us are kings and queens and we don't have a kingdom. But at a second glance, we can all relate to being in trouble of our own making. We can all relate to this. We live in an age where there are literally libraries of material on fear and anxiety. We live in an age of fear and anxiety. It's a, it's a paradox because there's been lots of advancements in education and technology and science and psychology. And we, we, there's been untold advancements. I mean, life today is better than it was 100 years ago. There's no doubt. There's been so many advancements, but not in this area. But for all of our advancements, we're, we're not living in a modern utopia. We've not leveled up. Nobody's spamming the X button of holistic health and just experiencing life like one long star power up through the problems. We're still living in this age of fear and anxiety. And there's contexts where fear can be constructive because it motivates us to act, but then there's other contexts where the fear is dehabilitating and we can't act. When I graduated from seminary in 2017, our family went on holidays to Florida. We're all in the, for my graduation, we made a, a holiday out of it. In the water with Nigel, we get caught in a riptide. It was terrifying. Like the adrenaline shot through my body because I was feeling us getting pulled out. And my, I was just consumed with, oh my, God help me. The waters, the waves are so foaming and frothy, I could lose my son. He was about 10 years old. And I clawed and I can't, I'm not a great swimmer. I can swim, but I'm not a great swimmer. Like Susan saved my life when we were teenagers. I'm not a great swimmer. But boy, when the adrenaline took over and I bloody was like trying to become Aquaman, I was fighting for my life, fighting for my life, fighting for my son's life. We get out of the water and my body was like shaking. And every once in a while when we're at the beach and I kind of remember that, the electricity goes up my spine because I remember it. There is fear that motivates us to action like that. But then, there, of course, we all know the anxiety of being dehabilitated. Some of, some of you struggle with that regularly. Some of us who don't struggle with it rarely can have events that, that cause it and it's dehabilitating. I remember when I worked for a, a company before we planted the church here and they gave me an old car to go to a meeting. It was like a 1990s Toyota Camry with bald tires in the middle of an ice storm. And I was skating along uh, the street trying to stop. I could foresee I was going to hit the car in front of me. So I was doing absolutely everything I could to get the car off the road. I almost did it. And I clipped their, 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 their taillight and cracked the taillight and dented the trunk. Everybody was okay. And then two weeks later, somebody came to the office and they came to me and, I walked, and they said, Paul, there's somebody at the door. And I went to the door and there's a police officer standing there with an envelope. They said, are you Paul Dunk? I said, yeah. They said, you've been served. They walked away. I was getting sued for $2 million. 
It's a different kind of fear. Because I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't have $2 million. And, every, and, and I would just sit at my desk for hours, dehabilitated. I'd be at home eating food, my mind like just stuck on it. Fear can dehabilitate us. That's why in verses 2, 4, and 8, we get this word, Selah, which means pause, take a beat, breathe, reflect, meditate. It could also be a musical term, meaning that there's just an instrumental happening. A counselor today might say to you, feel your feelings, you know, emotional honesty, take emotional inventory. But it's not just emptying our minds, it's intensely filling our minds with the goodness of God. That's why we get the kind of strong language in the psalm you get in verse 7, where David just blurts out to the heavens, strike my enemies on the jaw, break their teeth. That sort of language, it offends our modern sensibilities. Oh, I don't like when the Bible uses that language. But yet we crave authenticity, don't we? This is authenticity. Oh gosh, I don't like that violent language in the Bible. Well, it's there to show you the grit and the depths of what you might feel or do if you went home and your family was dead in the street. In southern Ontario, life is pretty cushy. We don't have that kind of life here. But we have people, in the, even in this room, who understand precisely what I'm saying. We have folks who have fled their countries precisely because of the violence. And that kind of language hits different when you're not from comfortable southern Ontario. Comfortable North America. Comfortable by global terms. So we can be honest about our fears and be brutally honest about our contribution to our problems. Which moves us to the next thing. We've got to magnify something. We've got to magnify our hope in the problem. We don't magnify the unchangeable facts about the problem. Which is like tasty truffles going down, but then it makes us bitter and sick. Magnifying is about focus. It doesn't change the size of the problem. It doesn't change the size of anything. When you magnify something, you don't magnify the reality of it, but you sure make it big in your own eyes. It becomes the object of your absolute focus. And so in the midst of our problems, you and I all do well to... Selah, take a beat, go to God. And we need to stop magnifying what's happening to us, and we need to begin to magnify, as the psalm does, who God is for us. God gives us the scripture so we can stop listening to ourselves. We're given the psalms so we can start listening to Him. Meditation is not the emptying of our minds. It is the intentional filling of our minds. Not with our words, our repetitive rehearsing words, but God's words, which can reverse our emotional state. The very word of God. Maybe you're here and you're like, oh, I've tried that. Then, my friend, to be blunt, I have nothing for you. Because if the God of all heaven, the creator of the cosmos, who commands us to take a beat and stop and reflect on him, and by the very presence of the one who spoke and brought the reality into being, cannot calm our soul, I don't have anything for you. Somebody's book, sitting down with someone who listens to you. They don't, they, I'm not diminishing the wisdom and praise God for the common grace of, of, our, of our educated therapists who can give us means and tools and wisdom and insights. I praise God for them. I'm not diminishing that. What I'm saying is they pale in comparison to us closing the door and say, <sighs> we've got to magnify And build this magnification into the rhythm of our very lives. He says in verse 3, Thou, O God, you are a shield about me. Shields don't keep you from danger. Shields are for the danger. God uses terrible things to forge character and resilience and courage in us. 
He uses these terrible things. Things that are not like him. Things that were never planned by him. Things that are all terrible things that are used by him. He turns evil on its ear. Which is there to destroy you. And he uses it to forge his character and strength and grace and resilience in you. To borrow from theologian Esau Macaulay. We've got to trust him when we can't trace him. In verse 3, he goes on to say, You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. In other words, I'm terrified, but you're my glory. The late Tim Keller said this about this phrase. That, in, that insinuates, if we know the scriptures, that at one point in David's life, something else was his glory. And when something else became his glory, the wheels came off. It's a repentant phrase. You're my glory, because at some other point, something else was. Augustine would put it this way in his confessions. You can love the good things, but you can love the good things in the wrong way. And you can glory in the wrong thing. To glory in something is to give it weight and significance. And is it possible that the fear in our lives, the anxieties that we feel, is because something good has become ultimate? David lost his throne, he lost his kingdom, he lost his track record, he lost his family, he lost his reputation, he lost his power, he lost everything. He needs a trust transfer. When you and I are in that emotional state, starfished on the bed, feeling like we've lost everything, we need to magnify something. We need a trust transfer. We need an emotional, soul-level rescue. And that comes with the Selah. That comes with the magnification. When we crash and we burn and we glory in the small thing, you know, and... and, uh, We feel like we're at the bottom. Praise God that he does have an office at the bottom. We can find new help. He says, you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. The lifter of the head, that's a phrase, it's a proud phrase. My head is lifted high. Security, pride, sense of confidence, assurity. That's what that phrase is, to lift your head. But he's like, I can't lift my head. I've looked to other things to lift my head. Oh God, you are the lifter of my head. All my security is in you. My hope is in you. Which leads to the last thing. We've got to trust. We've got to trust in the guidance of God's word and his indwelling spirit because the way out of our problems is through them. This is the part of the sermon you're not going to like. In fact, maybe you're thinking it's too late. There's already been other parts I don't like. But this part, you're not going to like it. But because I care about you, here we go. The shield around me. What does that mean? Thou, Lord, are a shield around me. He's actually borrowing from a phrase that Abraham used way back. So David knows the scriptures and we will do well to know them. Where God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Get to that later. He says, Thou, Lord, are a shield about me. And he says, around, uh, the shield about, a shield around me. That's a specific kind of shield. I'm not an expert in medieval lore. You're not going to find me LARPing anytime soon. As I don't know a lot but about shields. So don't come after, up to me after the service and be like, um, actually, because I'm just confessing. I don't know a lot about shields. But I'll tell you this. There's the small Captain America variety that you wear on your arm and you take into a battle and you can be very agile. And then there's another kind of shield, which I saw in the movie Gla- Gladiator. This is the depth of my knowledge I'm using. Marvel references. And, but the shield in Gladiator, the, the, in ancient Rome, it's like the size of a door. And it curved around you. And that's this kind of shield. You're not carrying that thing around like Captain America, agile and moving. This is a slow movement forward through horror 
one step at a time. Thou, O Lord, art our shield about me. This is not a quick escape from the problems. This is the presence of God helping us through a terrible battle one foot at a time. What great imagery. God's deliverance, this slow march forward. Last week was Psalm 2. I talked about Jesus Christ being our king or our consultant. If he's the king, you follow the king. If he's a consultant, you take it under advisement. But the slow march, march forward, this desire to seek his wisdom and walk in obedience and follow the king, it can be hard. But to not follow the, to not follow the king is lethal. These are the choices in the problems of life. Follow the king, which is hard. Don't follow the king, which is lethal. And I, I told you that you weren't going to like this, but you're going to keep going. This is the goodness of having God just guiding us through, trusting Him. David's trusting Him. There's a there's an evolution and a shift. Uh, in his life and of trusting God. When Susan and I were in our 20s, we took a team of teenagers to Guatemala to do some mission work with a small church and work with kids. And we did that because we were young and stupid and we had a lot of energy. But we also did it because we loved Jesus and we wanted to help this church. We brought these teenagers down. This isn't an age where nobody had cell phones. You just dropped your kids off to the airport. We took them to another country. And then two weeks later, you went to the airport. And when your kid got off the plane, that meant everything was good. And so we took these kids, and when we were in Guatemala, they said, hey, we're going to give you guys a day off at the end of the trip. And the day off was arguably a day on. It was actually the hardest day, because they said, we're going to take you to a waterfall. It's beautiful. And you're going to enjoy this waterfall. And it was hours and hours and hours in the hot Guatemalan sun through thick, lush vegetation and bush to see this waterfall. Susan was seven months pregnant with Isaiah. We almost had a Guatemalan middle child. Because what Susan did at seven months was bonkers. At one point, the only way to get up the hill was the guide went up first, tied a rope to a tree, dropped the rope down, and we had to scale about 60, like a little bit higher than a basketball net, like about 15 feet. And uh, there was Susan, seven months pregnant, scaling up the... There I was behind her getting ready to catch my second child. And... (laughs) And there were many times through that that we did not want to be there. We wanted out. But if I had said to the guide halfway through the bush, look man, this is ridiculous. I can't believe that you took me and my pregnant wife and these teenagers into the, this better be the greatest waterfall of all time. And I got to tell you, it was not worth it. Okay, so... <laughs> so... If I had said, we're out of here, we would, we would still be there. Rebecca would have been raised by her grandchildren. Nigel, Isaiah would have been like a little blue-eyed Mowgli just living in the bush. We'd still be there. You can't leave the guy. That's thou, O Lord, our shield about me. But how many of us in the midst of our problems said, you know, I'm not sure God is good. I'm not sure God is wise. I'm not sure God is here. I'm not sure God cares. Susan and I have been in uh, pastoral ministry since we were 20. So that's 18... No, my gosh. We're 48. So that's 28 years. And in 28 years, I've heard a lot of folks say things that sound like, I've tried God. I've tried prayer. I've tried 
tried this and I've tried that and it didn't work. As if God is like some sort of a recipe that can go wrong. If you get the recipe right, God's grace is good. But if you get the recipe wrong, God is somehow like, I'm sorry, I don't work. We don't try Him. We turn to Him. We throw ourselves at Him. We cling to Him. Because if He's not your King, something else smaller is. If He's not your guide, something else infinitely more impotent is your God. We've got to trust Him. And I know that we don't like this. I don't want the slow march forward. I don't want thou, O Lord, our shield about me. I want thou, O Lord, our speeding stallion that takes me from battle. Thou, O Lord, are an armored G-wagon that repels the sorrows and the arrows of life. That's what I want. The way out is through. Beauty from ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. He says in verse 5, I lay down and slept. What a gift. Those of you struggle with fear, anxiety, depression, and you can sleep. What a gift. David, thousands are after him. Literally, it's not even poetry, that phrase. It's literal. Thousands are after him. He's having a crisis. Will God deliver me? I lay down and slept, and I awoke again, sleeping in the storm. I will not be afraid of the tens of thousands who are after me. The fear should be debilitating, but it's not not dehabilitating. The trust, the rhythm, the rest, it's rehabilitating. My friends, this is your pathway. Building these rhythms into your life. Seeing it like life and death. It's not like, oh no, I don't like sermons that sound this way because that makes me feel like if I don't have these rhythms, I'm a bad Christian. My friend, if you haven't heard anything, hear this. If you're not in prayer and you're not in meditation, that doesn't make you a bad Christian. It makes you a vulnerable Christian. No shield. So you've got to change your categories of good and bad to vulnerable and safe. And the more things that catch on fire in your life, the more you go into, you go into turtle mode, the shield. Again, going back to my embarrassing knowledge of shields. They would, those shields, they would like turtle themselves under those shields. And they would just move one foot at a time with a million arrows and the hot oil and whatever else was happening coming at the shields. And they just kind of moved a foot at a time until they got through the horror. This is how God carries us through our horror. So he uses this phrase, you're my shield, because he gets it from Abraham, as I mentioned. Genesis 15. Abraham, I will be your shield. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And then Abraham says to God, well, how am I going to know that? And then God tells Abraham to cut a bunch of animals in half and lay them down. And, and for us as moderns, it's disgusting. We don't know what's going on. But in the ancient world, this was very common. You split, it's called a suzerain treaty. You split animals in half. The blood is in the middle. And you basically say, if you, if you or I don't keep our end of the deal, what happened to this animals? It happens to you. So you'd split the animals, and then I'd walk through the blood, and then you'd walk through the blood. We'd say, there, we just made a covenant. But in Genesis 15, God passes through the pieces, which is shocking because Abraham has a nap. God puts a deep sleep on Abraham. Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces. So in effect, in Genesis 15, God says, I am your shield. I will be your exceedingly great reward. By the way, you're probably going to fail, as all humans do. So why don't you take a nap? God causes a deep sleep on Abraham. God passes through the pieces. Even if you fail, this will happen to me. And it did on the cross of Calvary as God incarnated and came in Christ. And he was split and his blood was shed. And he paid the price and he did it. 
This is the goodness of our God. So you see in verse 7, we get that honest language. Strike my enemies on the, t- on, on the cheek. But at the cross of Christ, before they put our Savior on the cross, He was struck on the cheek. It's not instructions for how to relate to the city. It's freedom to be that honest with our God. And then he says, Arise, O Lord, and fight for me. This military language. You see the shift? He's not, he's not going to do the action. He's trusting God. God's going to do the action. It's a posture of trust. And trusting God, that phrase, trust God, guys, when I say that, trust God. It doesn't mean it's abstract and aloof and you're detached from your problems and just choose inaction. Just stay at home and lay on your bed and say, I'm trusting God and do nothing on Monday. No. It means... After praying this prayer, David engaged in all sorts of action, of course, as we look at uh, biblical history. But to trust God is a posture of realignment. It's realignment so we can be wise and loving and humble as we determine our next course of action. If we don't magnify, if we don't trust, if we don't turn, if we don't get in the shield, and we just keep on choosing courses of action, those are not going to be loving, wise, caring, godly courses of action. Now watch Formula One. Sadly, because I'm a Ferrari fan, but anyways. And most of you don't watch Formula One, so that's okay. But there's a term in Formula One when there's a problem with the car. They'll say, box, box, box. If you're a Red Bull fan this morning, it's the golden age of Max Verstappen fans, so you don't know what this means, because you don't ever need to box, because you just win every race. But if you are the Tifosi di Scuderia Ferrari, then no piace. That means if you cheer for Ferrari, then you don't like it. And there is this... uh, Time when a car gets out of alignment, and when the car is out of alignment, the driver can often feel it. But when something internal goes wrong, the driver cannot feel that. But all the engineers on the pit wall go, yo, we have a problem. And they get on the radio and they'll say, sorry, uh, we need to retire the car. And the driver's like, what? Why? Everything's fine. The engineers are like, no. We've, we've checked the data. Everything's fine. The driver's like, everything's good. I can stay up. No, you can't stay up. If you and I don't turn and magnify and trust and allow the Spirit to realign before we make our next action, we're going to have all kinds of shunts in life. We're going to have all kinds of self-inflicted problems. We've got to get realigned, then race. And that's what David is doing here. This all begs the greater king, the one hero, Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David. The one who is the greater king, the greater priest, the greater temple, the greater sacrifice. The one to whom when we come to him, he makes the unclean clean. We find great rest in him. At his cross, we enjoy his redemption. Adoption as his children, as God's children becomes real. In his resurrection, the promise of new life. After this age of fears and anxieties, this fragile world, there is a new age. Another age that is coming. The the life eternal, the age of the king. With his return. This is what as Christians we believe. Physical, material, tangible. The renewal of our bodies. The renewal of our communities. With the return of Christ. For those who trust in Christ. That enjoy this, re- this resurrection. As Christ had one, we will have one. That in his return, there is the end of sorrows. The end of tears. The end of fear. But between this day and that day, may you and I hope and trust in the same God who took his son through his trials and trust that he will, by his indwelling spirit, be our shield and carry us through ours. Let's pray.